PS powered by Set. Welcome to the weekly review on RPS, the radio show where two grown men and a gifted young mind discuss some of the hottest and most relevant issues in pop culture. On this week's episode, we talk grumpy Britpop mask deniers, Kanye West versus the record industry, Cuties, that French movie about preteen twerk dancers that has created an uproar all over the internet, and we will be reviewing the latest album by grindcore masters, Napalm Death. <laughs> that was You Suffer by Napalm Death, the shortest song ever recorded according to the Guinness Book of World Records. We'll be reviewing their latest album later on in the show, but first, let's talk about the headlines that are making waves in the music industry. Now, I don't know what it takes to run for the presidency of the United States, but I'm sure it doesn't leave room for any ambitious parallel ventures that bait complicated lawsuits, unless you're Kanye West. As of last week, he started one of his Twitter rants against the music industry that included a ceremonial urination on top of one of his Grammy Awards, which he'd placed in one of his toilets. Then he proceeded to upload captures of every page on his record contracts for album deals in the hopes of getting every lawyer in the world to take a look at them for free and offer some advice on how to regain the ownership of the master recordings of his albums. Savvy Kanye, why pay for an esteemed law firm that charges my monthly rent by the hour when you can just get it for free from the internet? On my, uh, here on this round table, we have the fabulous Marvai Verdu and Ben Cardieu. Ladies and gentlemen, how are we doing? We're checking our contracts with an absolute <laughs> microscope. Do you read your, like, contracts you're like your rental the house that you rent I, I don't know the contracts that you sign for the daily daily business yes i do I, yeah i do um it, one of the very strange things i discovered is when you when you buy a house in spain like the the person you go to has to read the whole contract to you and it's like this eight page contract and they read it at this incredible speed like literally just like and then you would and he's reading the whole contract but in about five minutes and it's one of the strangest most surreal things ever because you're sitting there like I've got to understand this I've got to understand this going really really fast and at the end he's like Don Ben Cody yes it's, it's so strange it's because so many so many people have been shafted by not reading the small print Mar what is your relationship with contracts have you signed many in your <laughs> tender young age wow <laughs> that's attacking me no I've been unemployed most of my life not to say the last 23 years of my life so no I haven't read many contracts okay I want to read one it's on, on my wish list to read a contract and sign one start by reading Kanye West's uh, contracts they're, they're quite enlightening I mean one of the things that I take away from it which uh, really uh, it's not making me burn a candle for his plea at the local church is that some of these documents reveal that he received a 12 million dollar advance to produce Yeezus uh, with four million dollars allocated for just for recording costs right for life of Pablo he was advanced six million with three million for recording costs come on Mr. West I mean what are you complaining about Um, what do you make of all this Ben well I absolutely love the fact that he uh, tweeted out his contracts because these things are so often um, 
secrets. You don't get to see them. In fact, it probably was secret. And you probably shouldn't shouldn't have seen it. And I absolutely love being able to pick over exactly what someone get. Um, and in a way, I think it's really kind of brave of him to do it because he is totally setting himself up up for a fall. I mean, you know, it's pretty strange. You know, if people know that you've got an eight million dollar advance or something like that, it kind of shades the way in which people in which people see you. Um, and as someone who sort of worked in music industry media for a while, I found it absolutely fascinating. The other thing, but. The other thing was, it's a very, very, very good record contract. I can see why he wants to get out of it, but my God, the amount of money he's getting and they're renegotiating, they're giving him more money. Um, and he got like three million for that film, which I couldn't even remember the existence of. You know, it's a very, very good contract. And I read uh, a very interesting uh, article on Vice, actually, um, in which they talked to some music lawyers about this. And they said, some artists get screwed by their labels, but Kanye isn't one of them. Um, so I thought it was fascinating. The, I mean, the, the fundamental thing is, right, any musician, I you would be annoyed, right? You do all this work and then, like, the album isn't yours. Like, that's annoyed musicians since time immemorial. You know, that, that annoyed Taylor Swift. But, you know, don't sign the contract then. You know, or, or, or don't take the eight million. Or, you know, it'd be interesting to see what he does next. Like, you know, because he's got a lot of money, right? thing is if you sign a record contract you don't have to bother with like distribution and press they just do it all for you but if you don't you do you do it yourself you can own it but then you have to be like okay well i'm going to get someone in to do the distribution i'm going to get someone into like literally upload it to spotify and it's quite boring so what a record contract does takes all that boring stuff off you basically would he want to do it well, Ben, you, you know, uh, it's, it's, Mar, you, you, your, your generation is uh, facing a new and exciting uh, record industry because you can DIY all your all your, your entire career. You know, people are uploading their own albums to Bandcamp, asking for fans to pay. Uh, what's that? Pay what you will or pay what you wish. Uh, that kind of. It's very. It sounds very fair and utopian, but I I remember the golden days, and I caught the last of it when there were all these record labels and uh, marketing managers and all the people who. Used to work at labels and deal with us, the music press, were super cool and they had lovely jobs. And thousands of people lived from the music industry. So it's not like it was just one greedy CEO making all this money and exploiting artists. There was a whole, um, there was there were many jobs being paid for thanks to the revenue that record sales would would bring into a record label, uh, uh, would bring from selling a record. I think it's this this whole plea of artists always like oh we want more money we want more money it's like dude it's a market i mean to sell tomatoes i compare it to selling tomatoes you know there's a lot of work and a lot of intermediaries that have to go make sure that the tomatoes are safe that they don't rot that they get to the marketplace in good condition for the consumer etc etc you know it's it's a bit of a crap analogy but but the thing with Kanye is i don't think he does want more money that's what's interesting about him he wants his masters back and in fact the thing the thing that i always find about him is there's such a sort of thin line between really sensible stuff and really crazy stuff. Like I was just looking at the, the things he's been tweeting recently um, and some of the stuff is just nuts and then some of it makes a lot of sense. Like One of the things he says is that he would like... Uh, it, the first thing that changes about record deals is actually lawyers. We need plain English contracts. A lawyer's role is to improve deals, not charge for contracts we cannot understand or track. And I think that's a very good point because you were talking about reading contracts earlier. Contracts are hard to understand. And the reason contracts are hard to understand is because they're written in sort of legal language. And that means you need a lawyer to read them, you know. But if you, like, I remember trying to read a contract, I can't remember what it was. And I was just reading it and I had to sit down by myself. It was like 10 pages. And I was like, okay, I understand this. I understand English. And at the end, I said, okay, I think. 
think I understand what this means, but it was hurting my head to do it. And I think, like, having playing contracts in the record industry and elsewhere um, is a very good idea. The other thing that Kanye brings up um, is the uh, the deal that UMG Universal has in Spotify. Because the major labels have a big deal in Spotify. So when Spotify went public, they made a load of money. Now, where did that money go? I think labels said they were going to give some of it to artists. Mm. But is that fair? Because it, it seems a little bit... You know, we know how much Spotify pays out. It's a small amount, and whether that's fair or not, you can debate that. But the big thing about Spotify, it's not making money, but it's worth a load of money. So the money is in the equity. Now, record companies have a lot of that, and artists on the whole don't. Is yeah. that fair? And and they are the, the principal draw. It's the talent which makes people join Spotify. Totally right. But uh, the good thing, uh, as another good thing about this is that now every artist who wants to renegotiate their contract is going to come waving West's profit share agreement at them. Uh, and it was... Uh, you know, because they, now they know what they can ask for. You know, uh, so many bands, so many are so naive, especially if you get picked up when you're a teenager, like the Arctic Monkeys, or you know, you, you're not wise enough, and you go into these these this boardroom. You know, the tales that so many bands tell of when they've been pampered by record labels, they've been flown in business class all the way to Capitol Records in LA, they've been taken out to dine really expensive sushi. You know, you're just some kid who who was who was, who started playing in a garage and all of a sudden you're being treated like Julio Iglesias Iglesias <laughs> and it's it's logical they're like here sign your sign here and and don't look at the small print and all of a sudden you've sold away 10 albums worth of 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 rights to this record label and 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 the worst is when you have to perform you know when they give you all these advances and you spend them and oh yeah all this money's coming in it's like yeah yeah but if the album doesn't sell you are indebted to this record label and that's happened so many times yeah but in a way that's the thing if you're in debt to them you're in a way you're kind of all right because they spend all of this money and if you can't pay it back you know the band splits up or whatever at the end of the day you don't have to pay it back you're not you're not personally liable for it so something i i uh i remember i think it was radiohead saying oh, talking about contracts at one point it might not have been it doesn't sound very radiohead it's like basically like you know they're going to spend all of this money on you. If you think you're never going it back, then go for it. Get that limo. You know, this doesn't sound very ready head at all. Can't no. be in <laughs> like, you know, get that limo, get that tour support. It'll be good for your career. And yeah, you'll never recoup. But if you didn't reckon you were going to anyway, that that that's fine. You know, this, this only kind of comes into effect where if you, you know, you need to recoup all of this the, all this money. And if you think you might do it, well, that's when you don't want them spending all of that much. The funny thing is, Kanye's asked for support from everyone, uh, from Bono, from U2, from Paul, which we assume is McCartney because they collaborated together. And I'm sure Mar is going to like this. I think you've you've got something to say. He's even s- offered to get Taylor Swift's masters back. Is this true? Yes, it's true. And I don't know if it's Kanye being like, oh, I'm all peaceful now. I love everyone. Or is he's being bitter again, like, oh, I'm going to do this for you. Like, so patronizing, like, I made you famous and I, now I'm going to get your masters back. Like you're, You have to be grateful to me for existing because I'm basically making your <laughs> life. And I don't know if Taylor is here for it. I, I, I would, and I think she she's kind of, no, like leave me out of the narrative again. Like leave me alone, I'm going to manage that. I'm a super powerful woman. I'm going to get my masters back my way. You don't have to come here and rescue me or whatever you think you're doing. But I, I also enjoy this drama thing going on that he's making like 
coming together with his enemies like Taylor and even Drake. He made jokes like, "Oh, I love Drake back. Um, he's not gonna murder my family anymore. We're we're good." <laughs> and it's like, okay, a month ago you were saying you were scared of him, and now it's all good, and you want to come together with him to get the masters of everyone's back. So okay, you, you go, Kanye. I'm here for your monthly dramas. So one thing I'm going to find fascinating is like, what happens? Are Universal going to give in? Because this is like a massive headache for them. You know, one of their very biggest artists is very unhappy with them. But if they give in, aren't, aren't more people going to ask things? And if they don't give in, aren't they going to be seen as like the very bad people um, who, you know, wouldn't uh, indulge this artist, wouldn't give him back his masters, the, the, the poor person, even when he was offering offering to pay. So it's going to be fascinating. Though. I mean, it's a massive headache for them. It's the worst thing that could happen. Because as you say, other artists are going to come and go, <laughs> Kanye got 12 million. Imagine if you were Drake, who's probably bigger than Kanye. Yeah, Drake's bigger than Kanye, right? And imagine if you got like... Six million for your album. You'd be like thinking, yeah, six million, that's pretty good. Then you'd read those, but like, he got eight million. I'm asking for 12, you know? And it's not like, you know, there's any egos in the record industry. Is there? Fragile egos. So we listen to an, a, a song that you've chosen, which, uh, which could be d- d- dedicated to both the labels and someone like Kanye West. This is Wolves. That was Kanye West with Wolves. Uh, which is dedicated to anyone who has ever signed a recording contract. So that's a bit harsh. Um, so th- that was not the only, uh, by no means was that the only sort of clash in the uh, press today. That was that was kind of very interesting. But also we saw music or Britpop versus The Mask uh, in a clash I found entirely depressing. Johan, tell us about it. Well, it seems that a number of ageing British rockers with plenty of time on their hands have been vocal in their stand against wearing masks during this pandemic. Ian Brown, Noel Gallagher, Van Morrison and a few more have been taking to social media and other outlets to claim their right to go against health and safety regulations and not wear masks. Curiously, Brown recently just dropped a new protest single, Little Seed Brick Tree, which has been labelled Red Pill Rock, in allusion to the whole conspiracy theorist concept of the blue pill, red pill dilemma from the movie Matrix. <sighs> I mean, I, I'm, I don't know about you girls and guys, I'm sick of all these conspiracy theories and all this bombast, you know. I'm sick of everything. I'm sick of the COVID and stuff. And it's like, all I, I don't need one of my childhood heroes, Ian Brown, to come along and put more salt on the wound. What do you make of this? Well, can I just say it first? That song is terrible. It's one of the worst examples of recorded music I've ever heard. Like, I was a big fan of the Stone Roses, and I remember when Ian Brown came along for his solo career. And um, I was living in France at the time, and he came on French TV, and I was really excited. And it was just one of the worst things I'd ever seen. He was just like grunting and groaning. I was like, this is terrible. This is, uh, the, you know, I was literally depressed. And this track is even worse. It's it's, it's God awful. I have to say, this is something that we've always admired, uh, me and some of my Stone Roses ma- uh, fans mates, fan mates. Uh, how how much of a crap singer Ian Brown always was, but what a great front man he is, especially in front of Stone Roses. But I, I saw him solo once and there's not maybe there's one song uh, Corpses from uh, Unfinished Monkey Business which I liked but really his albums are hard work they're, they're not they're not the best things ever put to record uh, but there's just he's got such a swagger and it's he's such a he was he is such a cool guy really when he's not mouthing off in, in, in a situation like this uh, Mar were you ever 
do, do, do you have any kind of relationship with the Stone Roses? <laughs> um, I like their album covers, I, but I haven't really digged down into the into the music. But talking about um, these people who are anti-maskers, I was on the internet, surprise, and I saw that on Urban Dictionary they made up a word for these people. And I don't know if it's actually being used or not, but uh, it made me laugh because the, instead of saying anti-maskers, um, Urban Dictionary um, said that they could be called rat lickers. Like, if we were to be in the bubonic plague, they would be rat lickers. They would take <laughs> the rats on the street and lick them and be like, oh, see, the bubonic plague is not a thing. Look at me, I'm licking all these rats. And I think that th that's a good thing. Rat lickers. Yeah. Wow, it's got a ring to it, isn't it? Oh, yeah, Ian Brown, oh, another one of these rat lickers. <laughs> wow, wow, how yeah. the Urban Dictionary so fast. One thing that's really depressed me about this as well, that Ian Brown, not, <clears throat> it's not just that it's Ian Brown doing it, but like he's so, I don't know, he's been so boring about it. Like, boringly done. I mean, like, okay, so for example, I'm just looking at, at, at some of his uh, quotes here that he's been, been talking about. Uh, he's like, the Great Reset, the plandemic. Yeah, you get it? It's just like, Ian, come on, I've heard that 8,001 times. Um, and uh, what else does he say? Um, he said, oh, he thought, so I'm a conspiracy theorist, ha, a term invented by the lamestream media. It's mm. like, oh, Ian, come on, for God's sake. He's like a, a Reddit user or, for, or he's, like, he's on 4chan. I mean, it might even be taken out of context. He's probably as laid back as he always is. And he and someone asked him, and well, no, he's not. He's, he's using Twitter. <laughs> no, he's, 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 it looks like he's shouting from it's his. It's very hard to like take this out of context. It's very hard to spin it in a in a good way. And the same thing is happening here in Spain with this very famous pop star from the '80s, Miguel Bosé. You know, he was practically an institution here in Spain. You know, it's all these men in their midlife crisis. They're all in their fifties, and they're all having this moment, and. All right, look, we're all having to deal with being shut indoors. We've all been under lockdown. We're all being restrained. All these artists are not being allowed to tour. There's no kind of hope in the future. The least you can do if you are a touring artist is try and comply with health and safety regulations. It, never mind the politicians or these whole theories about the 5G and Bill Gates and all this, whatever you want to entertain your mind with. I mean, it's all a question of it's, it's kind of proven, isn't it? Masks, wearing masks has reduced the the amount of contagion shall we say or 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 keeping um, a two meter distance between people you know the social distancing does work and i can test it because my girlfriend runs an old people's home and they haven't had a single case of covid touch wood because they've just respected the the the, the regulations you know they've worn their masks they've kept their distancing they've limited the amount of visits and it's worked so mr brown i'm sorry uh, to argue but you might be able to tour again if you just wear your mask. <laughs> to all of you asking about my medical qualifications, I have the same as the computer seller Bill Gates, brackets, biggest funder of the World Health <laughs> Organization. It's like he doesn't sell computers. You know what I mean? Like, they make software. Does he not realise the difference? And like, computer seller. Could you not come in? It's like something a seven-year-old would write. You know what I mean? Like, computer seller. <laughs> they understand computers. And no, no Gallagher was on it as well. And he's just like, oh, come on. Like, why are these people getting so, so old and grumpy? I mean, like, all right, Britpop wasn't the most, like, you know, radical movement. But it seemed, you know, I was there. It seemed nice and young and we were all together and in it and left wing and that, that kind of thing. Why is he going on? He's like, oh, I don't want to wear a mask. I've had enough. I 
I don't get it. Like, even if you be- really believe, like, no, masks don't work, whatever, even if you really think that which is crazy by itself, why would you say it out loud? Just wear it and act like a good person. Like, if the people, ne- the person next to you believes it works, do it for them. Like, th- do you have human basic empathy? Like, that's the bare minimum. Like, if you don't want to believe it or whatever, it's, the facts are there, but do you, but at least wear it for human basic yeah. empathy ne- for other people. Out of politeness, out, yeah. of, out of just uh, being a human, uh, a decent human being. You don't know if the person sitting next to you mm. on the subway has lost uh, an, a family member exactly. to, this, to this bloody virus. But there is a little uh, good... I don't. Not, I wouldn't say good news, but there is a little sort of ha moment in all this. Uh, Liam Gallagher retweeted one of Ian Brown's posts. I, I imagine in agreement. So is this the first time Noel and Liam agree on something? No, no, no. Liam's been very pro wearing a mask. Oh, yeah, yeah he's been good. He did a video of himself washing his hands for thirty seconds. Oh, he's yeah, I saw that video. Himself in mask. No, he's. he's he, I don't know why he's in agreeing with Ian Brown. He probably wasn't paying much attention. Was well, he? I I witnessed one of the best. Uh, bro hugs between Ian Ian Gallagher and sorry Liam Gallagher and Ian Brown at Benny Kassim in 2001 2002 uh, I, I was I was sneaking there in the backstage and I saw you know one was watching the other's set and 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 as they came behind stage you know they gave each other a massive bear hug and it's like oh look at them two idols you know two manks but uh, also I thought yeah there's me thinking damn it you know could this be the closest we have to an oasis reunion not that i care that much by now i mean but still can i can i float a theory Mm -hmm. that there is something in the very sort of unsophisticated nature of Britpop, particularly particularly oasis sorry (laughs) that that sort of it it kind of almost doesn't surprise you like suede right who are far more interesting band far more you know sexy and weird Mm. and pulp who are far more sexy and weird you don't get them denying masks do you it's like it's like uh noel gallagher's music has infected his brain and made him into like a uh, an 80 year old person or something like that him and his fly, high flying turds and if his brother (laughs) (laughs) if he'd just like got a bit more you know Experimental. Maybe he'd open his third eye and he'd ah. realise that, you know... He did make an album with those amorphous androgynous, didn't he? And he didn't, didn't release it, yeah. Oh, he As didn't he release it? it. Weird, yeah. Oh, what a coward. <laughs> <laughs> Noel, coward. Ha ha, see what I did there? <laughs> uh, what, what, what song would you play to this? Okay, I was, I was looking through and I was coming through with all of these... Britpop classics I thought about Live Forever yeah because you know they obviously think they're gonna uh, live forever um, I thought about I'm the Resurrection because you know he died and, <laughs> and then <laughs> was resurrected um, but no in fact and this might make me quite a grumpy person uh, I decided we were gonna listen to a little bit of Stormzy with Shut Up Shut up. <laughs> Not my words, but the words of Stormzy. Although, frankly, they can shut up. Loads of people can just shut up, can't they? Yeah. Yeah. But the ones who I'm glad are not shutting up in a, uh, after all these years, that they're still as relevant as back in 1981, are Napalm Death, who released a fabulous new album, which we're going to review right now. Now, look, I've never been furious enough in my life to appreciate the virtues of extremely aggressive music made by very angry men. But having said that, 
I approached this album with enthusiastic wide ears, and I must say, I am impressed with many things. For instance, the mixing. For these guys to stir up such a racket and still be able to decide, uh, hear every single instrument clearly puts a lot of merit on the producer, Russ Russell, who also engineered, mixed, and mastered the whole damn thing. Mar, are you an <laughs> Apon Death fan? I was on, on the train this morning and I'm I was like, oh, I'm going to listen to the album finally. I'm excited to see what it's about. I, I bet I will like it. I, I've liked all the albums until now. Um, I wasn't expecting that at 10 o'clock in the morning. <laughs> I was just like, oh, okay, the, the cover's a dead pigeon. Okay, that's kind of a weird choice, whatever. And then I put the first song on and I was like, okay, um, two seconds, I'm done. I get it. <laughs> I don't like it. I don't want to hear it anymore. And I feel like an old lady for not liking all, not being able to listen to all genres and being like, oh, okay, I don't love this genre, but I, I can listen to it. But no, I, I cannot physically do it. And I, does this make me like an old person? Like, oh, you shouldn't listen to this music because they're screaming and doing nothing. But I really cannot do it. I, I bet it's good, but I wouldn't know. Ben? Well, I really enjoyed it. <laughs> I used to, I had a small kind of history in this kind of music when I was about 12 13 for some weird reason I was quite into Slayer and I had like a couple of Napalm Death songs um, and I wouldn't say it's something I listen to every day and in fact like, I was just looking back at Napalm Death's recorded history and I was like oh I haven't listened to any of their albums before I don't think um, and also I'm going to throw in my, my, my ignorance because uh, I don't know the, this kind of music well enough to sort of necessarily distinguish like grindcore and death metal and you know other types of metal and that kind of thing so if i use the wrong term then well I, uh, apologies but i don't really care but i <laughs> i gotta say i really enjoyed this and my theory johan i told you i had a theory is that napalm death are funky right no no <laughs> okay maybe yeah maybe i haven't gotten too deep into it please explain yeah, how how, how do you arrive at funky <laughs> with napalm death well, it's a bit difficult because, like, funky is obviously hard to define, right? But, okay, how would you define funky? How would you both define? Like, groovy, makes you dance. There's a bass line. Actually, I do agree that there was a song that made me, mm, like, strut a little bit. There's a little bit, right, groovy. Okay, makes you dance, yeah, that might be a bit bit difficult. <laughs> but uh, groovy, I think it's got a bit of groove. It's got a bit of swing, you know. It's got this really fast blast beats. But there's something within that that's got a little bit of a swing to it, a little bit of a groove. It's not like I think if it was just totally straightforward, just totally like four four. Um, well, I mean it is four four, but totally kind of like done in a very straight fashion. I wouldn't have enjoyed it particularly. But they've got something. They've got a kind of certain looseness and and funkiness uh, to them. Um, something like fluxing of the muscle. My, my my extensive notes read elements of groove. Their sound is oddly, vaguely funky. And when I started to listen back to it, I was like, oh, I get it. Yeah, they're that fast, but they don't sacrifice everything for being fast. Because there's no point in just being fast, right? Because if you want to be fast, a computer can be faster than you. So there's no point in being the fastest band around. So you've got to add something, right? And that's what I think they do. I think they've got a lovely sort of... Um, a lovely touch, a lovely way of playing. It's oddly, vaguely funky. 
Well, because I wasn't that well versed in them, I decided to go back and listen to their first albums, Scum and From Enslavement to Obliteration, so I could appreciate the evolution and, and contrast to where the, how they're sounding now in comparison to that back then. And it really is a testament to their grandeur, you know, because I, I obviously read some other reviews and critics are praising how, with songs like A Belly Full of Salt and Spleen or White Cross, they've opened their frontiers into sombre atmospherics, similar to the ones you can find on a Swan's album and industrial textures akin to ministry or killing joke and I enjoy theatricality so by the time these two tracks flooded my ears and I, you know and my soul I felt like wearing a hooded robe and sacrificing a piece of fruit in honor of some pagan ritual by the way side note to all you enthusiastic fans who get carried away please refrain from filling your belly with salt you will die you will die you, you know and the cities will crash and burn and you will miss out on the apocalypse Careful with the salt. Use some soy sauce instead, even though soy is bad for the rainforests. Um, what I find inspiring, right, about Napalm Death is, you know, the, they've been... They, the, the band was formed in 1981, but they've been uh, changing lineup ever since, and there's actually not one of their original members in the in the current lineup, even though they do have um, uh, one of them. Uh, what's his name? I've got it here in my notes somewhere. Shane uh, Barney. Shane Barney. He's oh, he's. Sorry, that's two people. Shane and Barney. Shane. <laughs> Barney's the lead singer. Shane is the bass player. Who's been uh, uh, playing with them since 1987, which is when they started recording their music properly and releasing albums. So you could say, yes, uh, part of the recording Napalm Death. He's been there since. Uh, Shane Embury. That's it. Um, so th what I like about this band is that the the name or the idea of Napalm Death is bigger than the sum of its members. You know, it's almost like a religion. It's like a cult. And it stands for something that I, even if you're not a Napalm Death fan or, or into really aggressive grindcore, so many people feel that th this is cathartic music. And, and the, all the albums we've been reviewing up till now are perfect albums for the times we're living in. I, it, be it uh, cosmic escapism with flaming lips or um, mellowing out with Eddie Chacon or, or, or that Jessica Boston album we were talking about, This, is, uh, this Feeling Is You. Uh, all these albums that have been coming all throughout the year are perfect for the times that we're living in. And what I needed was one to help me Uh, bring out the rage, shall we say. It can be cathartic, it can be good. I can imagine, um, it's a shame we can't get to see this live yet. We hopefully will. Napalm Death, I remind you, are booked to play Primavera Sound 2021, if all goes to plan. And it all will go according to plan. It will. Ian, it Ian will. Brown's got it covered, don't worry. Ian Brown and, and Noel Gallagher are making <laughs> sure that we will not have to wear masks by the time end of May rolls around uh, 2021. But, um, so, but it, you know, I, I can just imagine shutting yourself in a room or on a terrace or going down to the beach and playing this loud and letting it really, <laughs> letting it tear out because catharsis is very good. Well, there's an interesting phenomenon I've found. There's this genre of music called extratone, right, which I've talked about before, which is basically incredibly fast electronic music. I mean, you're talking like BPMs of like up to a thousand. And it's so, so fast that every single bass drum kind of loses its impact. It becomes almost like a drone. And I find there's a way you can listen to Napalm Death in which is the same kind of way. You just sort of like, it becomes like a, a sort of weird waspy-ish drone rather than the thumping bass drum at every, at every angle. That said, Mark, I wouldn't, I don't know, on the train on a, on a beautifully sunny morning, I'm not sure I, if I would have liked it uh, either. 
I will try to give it a second chance, thinking it's groovy, it's funky, you want to dance, you want to enter to it, you want to listen to it. And maybe that way I can I can just enjoy it. Well, it go on, Johan. Well, it's kind of like those HBO shows, like Matt, uh, well, like even like uh, The Wire, for instance. It takes you two seasons to okay. get into that kind of frame of mind and the way they talk and that lingo. It's kind of, wow, I, I don't understand what's going on. They talk really fast. But after two seasons, you get hooked. And that's what happened to me the other morning approaching this album. It's like after the third song, I was like, ooh, yeah, yeah, I'm actually enjoying this. You know, while I was making my breakfast and I was getting into it, I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It set me up for the Darling, day. Darling, come and listen to this. Darling, come and listen. Yeah, no, my girlfriend, I'm afraid she didn't. She, she found it a little bit resistant. See, I, I found that I got, I could listen to about six tracks and then it got a bit too much. But luckily, they kind of changed styles a little bit. You know, they, because their, their sound is a lot more... Um, wide than I expected like there's a Sonic Youth cover on there there's like gothy songs there's songs that sound a bit like Killing Joke there's mm. punky songs which I was really surprised by funnily enough I think like the, the what they do best is like the classic sound you know the classic sort of grindcore blasting and they start and finish uh it's finished the main part of the album like that and that's kind of what I like best but I couldn't listen to it too much like as I said it got to about six songs and that like, alright okay that's I think that's just about enough of that for the moment but then they changed up and it was a surprisingly expansive style like the, the song A Bellyful of Salt and Spleen mm-hmm. uh, it's kind of like gothic classical with martial drums that's yep. what, what what my notes say and you could almost imagine that being played in a chill out room my you're not convinced are oh, you uh, the chill out room part I, I'm, I'm not sure but <laughs> yeah I, the one I liked a lot it's the first one we listened to like the five second one I thought that was <laughs> magnificent like from a brilliant brilliant mind has to do that I, I'd love that too but just that one but it's funny because Napalm Death were famous for playing really fast, really loud, and having really short songs, right? Some songs were 1 minute 49, 2 minute 50, or something like that. On this album, we have some long songs. As I say, very a la swans. We've, we've even got a six-minute song somewhere down the line. No, 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 there's not a six-minute song. What am I talking about? Uh, no, that was a swan song. <laughs> there, but there are four, four and a bit, four and a half, four you know. and a half, you know, which is pretty long apparently for an Apalm Death song. So it's nice that they're they're broadening their 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 language, shall we say? Other fascinating thing about this is right. When I was a kid, I, I think I uh, tried to introduce my parents to the work of Napalm Death, mm. and they were just like, "No, that that name is absolutely disgusting," you know, because you know they'd 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 seen. Um, from news reports, obviously they weren't there. The, the Vietnam War, and they'd mm. seen you know pictures of Napalm, and they're just like, no, that that name is absolutely kind of like you know you yeah. you can't use it, which I can understand. Um, and um, so for a long time, I thought Napalm Death were like the baddest people in the whole world, you know. <laughs> and then I was reading up on them, and they've got really sound views. They're like pro animal rights, very left wing, and you read them, you're just like, okay, so Napalm Death are the kind of people you want to run your country. And like Ian Brown from the Stone Rose, one of those legendary groups, is a sort of anti-vaxxing pain in, in the butt. Who would who would have expected it? And they sing about some really interesting things here as well. Like I thought, um, uh, F, F the factoid, let's yes. say, to, to not get us. Uh, <laughs> Um, kicked <laughs> off is basically you know talking about it's about fake news and how factoids small pieces of information are knitted together sometimes to mean something completely different than what they evidently mean how that is used to dehumanise people and I thought what a very 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 interesting thing to sing about and to, ba- to be mad about and singing that mad angry voice I, I like it 
Did you like the voice? Uh, no, but if they're thinking about, <laughs> the, about that, I'm like, yeah, be mad, I, I be angry, go. So what? in what, right, okay, in what circumstances would you listen to it? Would you ever listen to it? <laughs> I don't know, if I was having like a raging day and I had to get all my anger out, but there was no way I could do it other than listening to music and destroying someone's room maybe my room because I don't want to destroy someone else's room maybe I should have that as a soundtrack while I go crazy but maybe maybe I listen to what they're saying and I'm like oh yeah I agree that's that's a good reason to be angry about I don't know maybe I will only listen to the short one that- the five second one on repeat <laughs> and that's it Well, that, that's something to be said. The, the vocals are, as we've mentioned, uh, they're, they're quite varied. You know, it's not just <laughs> screaming and, and guttural sounds. There's, there's different shades of, of, of this delivery, shall we say, which makes it a very interesting listen, as I say. Here's something also that ties Napalm Death into Kanye West, in a way. Well, oh. I'm going to go for it. So, um, <laughs> Kanye West was obviously talking about uh, the music industry and Spotify and things like that. So... You know, do you know when Spotify plays for for a, a song? When it pays, sorry. Something like uh, one cent, zero comma zero. Oh, one. no, so, oh. sorry. Yeah, it, it basically, they only pay if you listen to 30 seconds, right? So if you go to a song oh. and you skip, and you, you sort of listen to 10 seconds and you skip it, it doesn't count as a play, so you <gasps> get paid. I didn't know. Really? Yeah, so what happens with the Snake Palm Death song, which is one second long? Uh, on Spotify, I noted it's oh. up to seven seconds because there's a lot of sort of silence in front and after. Well, comparatively a lot. <laughs> what happens? And I asked Spotify about this. No response. Oh, which is which is just charming, isn't it? They don't make money off probably one of their most clicked songs. You know, everyone who who even if you read about it, oh, the shortest yeah. song in the world or whatever, everyone's clicked it, and they don't make a cent off it. Wow. Well, well they I didn't mean, know. Or do they? <laughs> yeah, I mean, who knows? Like it, it is. I think their their biggest song on Spotify. It's got something like. It is. Oh, uh, has it got like a million plays? Because you know, it's, it's just that kind of thing. Like, oh, let's check this. Check they this. should do the extended mm. version where it's just <laughs> like thirty uh, seconds of yeah, silence. Uh, yeah, that would be intelligent to do. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. A good way of trolling. One. Th- speaking of this, you know, on, I've noticed on Spotify, which is where I've been listening to "Throws of Joy and the Jaws of Defeatism," which is the title of the album, they've got bonus tracks. In this day and age, what's the point of bonus tracks? I don't understand. Why don't you just? make the long playlist i mean it's not like people buy cds anymore or ben can you clear know, this up? i quite like it i quite like it i mean sometimes you have bonus tracks because it's literally this is the amount you can fit on vinyl and so they're bonus in the sense that you don't get them on the vinyl on the, on the standard uh, edition of it but i quite like it because okay maybe this is my problem but i i still quite like albums being albums right mm, yeah and when people make albums too long it quite annoys me Mm. But if they say they're bonus tracks, for some reason it's like, ah, oh, okay, that's fine. The album's not too long, that's fine. But you've got these little bonus tracks that I quite like on the end. You know, and it's like, I could just listen to the album or I could listen to the bonus tracks. That's probably a very, very, like, person in the 40s way of thinking about music. <laughs> but yeah, but it's like when you see uh, the, you know, EMI reissue, the Velvet Underground Deluxe Edition, and there's like four CDs. And it's like, hang on, the original record was mm, no longer than an hour, and it was perfect. What's all this... The, demo version the the acoustic cover the the one that they recorded with us with a different snare drum and it's like i don't well, yeah but fan. but but 
don't you have one band you would listen to that from? Because I do. Um, for me, it's the Beach Boys, right? You can give me like three CDs of the Beach Boys farting around in the studio doing alternative <laughs> takes, and I will listen to it, and I will love it. And I've got I've got those kind of things. I think like so they're there for me, and I wouldn't listen to it if it was like the Clash because I couldn't be on. I don't like the Clash. Um, but there must be one band you'd listen to it for, right? Even or like no one. Like I, I look. One of my favorite bands from the last two decades is Interpol, and uh, one of the. Oh, it's always Interpol. It's always, it's Interpol. always Interpol. Interpol. Interpol, and and one of the things that kind of irked me about Interpol was that they were very stingy with bonus material. You know, they didn't have loads of t- uh, leftover songs or demos. It, whenever there'd be a special reissue, it was maybe a a demo of Obstacle One or stuff like that. And it's like, oh come on, guys, you know. Make more songs. Come on, write songs, you mother. <laughs> but I guess that's you know they always leave you wanting uh, wanting more. They always leave you. Uh, yeah, uh, they they let you get away from the table with a, with enough room for another spoonful of flan. Amar, who's your favorite band ever? A band, I don't know, but I was thinking, who could it be that I could listen to have a thousand albums of silence or just gibberish and I would listen to? And I think it would be Frank Ocean. But I think at the same time, it's because he never puts out music and I'm always wanting more, like more, put out more. Well, this is what happens when you get a bit older. Suddenly it goes from like, oh, we're not putting out anything to like, we're putting out nine albums of demos. And it's brilliant. Let me tell you, It's, it's sheer indulgence. (laughs) <laughs> and also, I've got to say, with Napalm Death, I thought the bonus tracks were the best, yep. some of the best ones, because they're the most interesting. Like, A Belly Full of Salt and Spleen, that, uh, oh no, that's not a bonus track, but like, uh, White Cross, their Sonic Youth cover, I thought was 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 really interesting, and Feral Carve Up, mm. uh, another bonus track, um, was another one of my favourite. And I guess, I guess it's the whole sort of mixtape thing, isn't it? It's like, you know, if it's um, not the album... With with speech marks around it, you feel like a bit freer to do what you will. Yeah, yeah, I can see how I can see that how that works. And talking of which, shall we have a little blast of uh, this? Is well, not a blast, a sort of drift of a bellyful of salt and spleen. Our <laughs> technician uh, Rob, it, it was was doing us some of that singing. It was quite astounding, mm-hmm. and uh, he, he's in a few, or was in. I'm not sure if they're still going a few. Cause of cadaver, core. cadaver. He's, he's got a, our, our technician. Look it up on Spotify. Cadaver with a K. Uh, a brilliant dark band. Come on, do, do it through the loudspeaker. See if we can hear you, Rob. Oh, he's shy. See, that's the thing. Death, like grindcore people are lovely. Grindcore people are lovely. It's Britpop people who are awful. I have a lot of respect for that kind of guttural singing because I can't do it. I've tried, you know, like, <laughs> I immediately get like people, hey, COVID, no, it's not. I've just been trying to sing like an Napalm Death. I can't do it. But anyway, we switch from the dark depths of uh, grindcore music to talk about a TV, uh, sorry, a movie, a French movie that has the world up in arms. Cuties. Cuties, yeah. Uh, um, you've got the down low. Tell us what's happened here. Yeah, like I said, it comes to no surprise that I'm always on the internet. So <laughs> I was one day on Twitter, like last week, but yeah, time, it's a concept. Um, I was um, on Twitter and, and someone retweeted like a, a clip um, just out of nowhere um, of this group of girls that are were um, 12, 11 maybe, like dancing in these flashy outfits and twerking and um, the camera shots were very questionable and and I was so surprised I was like what am I looking at and the person was like oh Netflix take this down this is 
pedophilia propaganda blah 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 and I was like what what are we talking about what is this um, and then I saw that it was this French movie called Mignons or Curious in in this translation mm-hmm. and that is now on Netflix that um, it premiered on January on the Sundance Festival and now it's on Netflix Netflix bought the rights and now it's it's they're doing the promotion and stuff and people are not having it at all like there there's these clips um, around the internet there's a petition in change.org that dot uh, org that has six hundred thousand signs to take the movie down uh, a one million and a half dislikes for the trailer on YouTube like it's everywhere everyone's mm. talking about it it was trending topic everyone's canceling their subscription to Netflix because they're not taking it down and I was like oh, mm, what is happening if this is actually um, well what I saw it for pedophiles and stuff um, it should be taken down but uh, as everything in life, it's not always like black and white. It, it, there's always something more intricate and more difficult when it comes to controversies. And as it happens, when you read more, you get more information and everything gets more complicated. Because once I started reading uh, about articles about this whole backlash thing happening to this movie, I saw what cuties is about. Because until then, I was just, oh, no, no, take this down, take this down. It, uh, people are going to use it for bad things. Um, but then I started... Um, I was like, okay, but what is the movie actually about? Because I, I haven't bothered to, to read about it. Um, and it's this 11-year-old girl with um, Senegalese origins that lives in Paris and becomes friends with these other younger girls from her neighborhood. And then they start a dance crew um, that is clearly really influenced by pop culture and their um, social media and everything going on. And she's kind of navigating this femininity that comes through pop culture and social media and the femininity in her household that is very traditional, that is um, very strict, and how she lives. And this is actually like uh, the not a biopic, but it's inspired the, from the director's own story that it's, this is her first movie and she won actually the Sundance mm. Film Festival Director's Award and she explained that she wanted to tackle this issue in, the, in her first movie because it felt very personal to her she experienced and wanted to talk about this hypersexualization of young girls and how is it tied to the images that we're fed since we're basically born through advertisement, entertainment music whatever you name it there's always this image of this hypersexualized um, young girl or very yet yeah, maybe a woman but very young woman if it's, it comes to woman and she wanted to make this coming of age movie and it, it for this very um, important concern of hers um, so yeah the, the clip that I saw on Twitter that everyone ha- was mad about and everything it was so deeply uncomf- uncomfortable to see like if, if you stumbled across it you you might know um, it's it puts you in a place that you want to take the, the, your vision out of the screen mm. because it's just these girls shaking their ass and they're clearly children and it's not something that you want to do but it's uh, it's what the director actually wanted she wanted to make us uncomfortable because this is something that it's actually happening it's not that it's a fictional story so of this parallel universe it's what's happening here now like girls are obviously influenced but why they're see everywhere and she, they want to mimic these images they're mimic um animals so it's it's supposed to make you think but 
here's the paradox. How is this movie, who is here criticizing the hypersexualization of young girls, being canceled and criticized for hypersexualizing girls? So um, people say the reason of this whole controversy was because Netflix um, chose a poster that had the girls in their dancing attire that is very clearly a, a very sexy and provoking, as I said. Um, and instead of choosing a poster like the French version that's just the girls running around Paris um, laughing with their shopping bags and stuff. Um, so the people before seeing the movie were already against it. Mm. So um, that was a bad choice. But I think um, the the thing is more even more difficult. Like even if Netflix um, chose a different poster and people got to see it, It is true that there's um, these scenes with the girls doing this movement mm -hmm. and the camera angles being this way and these uh, up-close shots of their bodies and stuff. Like, this could actually, like, let's not say it could not, but this could be material for people who are, who are not very well on their minds and think about this way of children. Mm. So... This is where, where I'm torn, like, where's the line where mm, I don't agree with people like the Texas senator Ted Cruz, who has even brought the film to federal investigation. I think that's <laughs> completely yeah. missing the point. But at the same time, is talking about controversy and using the controversy to make people like aware and, and stuff um, useful always? Like, is it a hundred percent proof? to be useful or maybe you want to maybe it misses the mark as well maybe it doesn't maybe the message doesn't arrive that strongly as you wish and maybe you'd wasted a sexualized image for the but people I, I I don't know I feel what do you think well, I have to say that the French French artists French uh, writers French film directors are have always been very tolerance with taking the limits you know pushing the limits shall we say i remember a, a film called bez moi bez moi i'm not sure if i'm pronouncing it right uh, in spanish it was called um, follame <laughs> very <laughs> they, they didn't there was no pussyfooting around it and it was a female director and it was basically a film denouncing rape culture you know it was very harsh it was it was very uncomfortable for me to watch and i was into watching edgy cinema you know and yeah la haine and stuff like that but this was like wow oof, this is the most The, the harshest, most feminist movie I've ever seen. It was so uncomfortable to watch as a man and stuff. And, and I've always respected the French for this because they they always put dialogues mm -hmm. on the table that may you know that raise important questions. If it has an effect, or a positive effect or not, that's open for debate. But um, I will always respect the French in that sense. And the, and and I'd like to know what French citizens are or what French Twitter is thinking of this because I can imagine Americans they just don't yeah. get it or the rest of the world no. But But um, I'm always sort of thinking, okay, I'd like to be as tolerant as the French. But at the same time, I can understand that those kind... It's like, is it, I, I love it when film directors are elegant and instead of showing me how you blow someone's head off, you know, you pan the camera and you hear the gunshot, you know. Exactly. That's what I was thinking. Like, maybe you can, instead of doing that scene of the girls dancing, maybe you can point the camera at the audience and just have their reactions and you can imagine what's happening. Hmm. But maybe you want that point of, of uncomfortableness, of awkwardness while watching it. Maybe only this way people will 
open their eyes and be like, okay, that's something that's really important that maybe we should discuss more about. Or maybe just, uh, I don't know, I both ways seem logical to me and I don't know which ones to... What, I mean, one thing I thought is, I think um, this film has stirred up um, a lot of a lot of criticism and I think a lot of things that the fashion industry does kind of get get pushed out of the way I mean like the fashion industry is still hiring models you know 16 mm. and even younger and even some of the older older you know it's like not old at all like, like the models look look very very young mm-hmm. and it seems like we're just kind of we're we're sort of all right with it. That's something I've really started noticing. When you see people, you know, you see really young-looking models in like, and and those are sexualized. They mm. are adverts for products. And okay, they're sixteen or they're seventeen, but God, that's young. Yeah. That's what made me think a lot. Like, okay, um, the Americans are really annoyed at this, and they really want to take it down. So, if that's the the thing. Exp- is through all the layers of society, I'm okay with it, but they're okay with having pageant things, that that thing that they put little girls in full-on makeup and they make beauty competitions. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, like Little Miss Sunshine. Oh Remember Little Miss Sunshine, yeah, that, the movie? that's allowed, and nobody really cares about it, and, and it's still a part of their culture and society, and they don't see the sexualization there. It's, it's obviously mm. there. So if we take out this movie out of the catalog of Netflix, mm. um, we should also um, cancel be- beauty competitions and all these other stuff. So if it's a thing that goes after another, I'm okay with it. But if it's only because the movie says it, but when it's in reality, we don't really talk about it, then no. The other thing is, if you've seen, if you've sat down, you've seen the film, and you've come to this <laughs> conclusion that it shouldn't be on Netflix or it should be taken down, then that's fine. That's that's your view. I can kind of understand with it. If you're going just on a poster, then I, I can't agree with you. And and all right, then there's a difficult problem. You're saying, well, you know, do I want to sit down and see something that's 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 kind of disgusting, but I think you need to re- really be kind of informed about these things, you know. Mm. Like, and again, yeah, if you come to that conclusion at the end and it's a considered conclusion, then fine. But if it's just a sort of knee jerk because other people are talking about it, then yeah. that's just ridiculous. No, no. I mean, I don't think anything should be banned. It just put a disclaimer on it. It is true what you say, Mara. I do agree that some, some, if you nor- if we, if you normalize things like this, well, you have problems like pedophiles all of a sudden thinking, oh, it's all right then for me to, you know, they're giving it to me for free or whatever. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I'm not a psychologist. I don't know how these things work and stuff. Uh, as I say, I, I, I'd rather, I, I cherish elegance, although I am a Quentin Tarantino fan and I love mm-hmm. his ultraviolence and I love the way his bodies bleed and blah, but it's ultraviolence. It's funny. Uh, but I guess someone would say, well, I feel the same way about girls dance. I don't know. Well, well, I'm a Serge Gainsbourg fan. What can I make of lemon incest? <laughs> Jesus. I mean, let's let's not. Maybe that that's a debate for another day. And it's a great way to say uh, to say goodbye on this note of um, <laughs> we're talking about incest with Serge Gainsbourg. Yeah, sorry about that. Uh, we're going to listen to a song from the film soundtrack. Uh, this is Nicky Noki, uh, Nico Noki, excuse me. With yeah. I won't stop. We'll see you all next week.